shall glorify. Amen. What a joy it is to worship together as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we gather in His name today to seek out His truth, to worship together in spirit and in truth, and grateful for these songs of the faith that we can sing. Let's bow for prayer before the Word as we look to the Scriptures on which all of these songs and these truths are based, and which is our life. Our Father, we come into your presence continuing in prayer and asking that you will enable us to understand the text that is before us, the truth that you would have to reveal by your Spirit to this church. By way of application, I pray that we might labor together under the Word and strive to conform our lives as a church to this Word and as individual members. I ask that you will work in the heart of anyone who knows not Christ as Savior and bring them to that light. We plead that such individuals among us might one day join us with tears and with heart of gratitude and thanksgiving in the songs of the church. We thank you that we've been able to sing in this way and to rejoice together and to edify one another with these songs, to lift up songs of praise to your name. It is the new life that you give us in Christ that is at the heart and the core of all that we're doing, and we give you thanks. I come again now to this petition, asking that you would enable us to discern the meaning of your word, to grow together in grace under the word. Feed us by it, I pray, and draw all of us to Christ as Lord and Savior. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Jesus was filled with rage. Looking across the vast pavement of the temple courts in Jerusalem, he saw men seated at tables transacting business with Passover pilgrims. Worshippers were exchanging currencies and they were purchasing sacrificial animals so they didn't need to bring them with them on the journey. There was nothing wrong about any of that as such. But these merchants and money changers operated under the oversight of the Sadducees, a sect of Jews who controlled the temple. And everybody involved was getting really, really wealthy. The worship of God at the temple was being commercialized to slake the greed of godless men. And this piqued Jesus' zeal for his Father's glory. As we know, he made a whip. He drove the money changers and the merchants from their posts, overturning tables, and he cleared the temple courts. He explained himself, quoting the prophet Isaiah, when he said in in Mark chapter 11 and verse 17, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The temple was to serve as a place where God's people met with him in prayer. 
When Jesus died as the final sacrifice for sin, when He became the final high priest, the church became the new temple of God. As we read in 1 Corinthians 3, do, not, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. It follows then that the local church, as the new temple of God, is to be a household of prayer. We are to gather as that temple, as a household of prayer. This deduction is supported repeatedly in the New Testament. Last week we considered that the Bible must determine and it must order the worship of the local church. God must be worshipped on His terms. Scripture makes this very clear, and His terms direct us in the New Testament to read, to teach, and to preach the Word of God. We are also directed to sing songs rooted in biblical truth, to magnify God's glories, and to edify one another in song. The New Testament also commends our giving to the cause of Christ on a weekly basis. And informally, at least, the New Testament calls us to build one another up in the faith during our meetings. Our meetings should accomplish that. It is my purpose today here to stress that in addition to these... The New Testament reveals that Eden Baptist Church is to function as a household of prayer. As the new temple of God, indwelt by His Spirit, we are to be a family that prays. The New Testament reveals that prayer is to be a specific element of our formal gatherings for worship. So we include that, mentioned it last week, we emphasize that here today. It also reveals that prayer is to pervade all of our life together as a local church. Formal and informal, public and private, planned and spontaneous. One of the most objective evidences of the importance of prayer in our worship services is found in the Apostle Paul's instructions to Timothy as he leads the local church at Ephesus. I invite you to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to look first of all into chapter 3, but emphasize here chapter 2. But chapter 3, if you'll make your way to verses 14 and 15, we see the practical purpose of the book revealed to us here. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you. I, I'm not there yet. I'd like to get there and I'd like to have a long discussion, but for now, I write these things to you, verse 15, that if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. I want you to know how to operate in assembly, how to function there. This is not left up to us to define however we choose, whatever it is that entertains people, whatever it is that people appreciate, what they like, what needs they lay out, and we then seek to meet those needs. Rather, the New Testament steers us and directs us and says, here is how you are to gather in the name of Christ and to worship. 
And this book is put together in part for that reason, guiding us to read and teach and preach Scripture. And throughout the New Testament, finding in other places evidences for singing and giving. And here in chapter 2, if we make our way back there to prayer, we are to be a household of prayer. We notice here in the first few verses that the local church is to function as a household of prayer for the nations. Verse 1 of chapter 2 reads, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Notice in verse 1 the word then. First of all, then. Whenever you see that, it's obviously based on what has come before. And it is really key to the interpretation of these next verses. Paul bases this call to prayer on the conflict between true doctrine and false teaching that he's been discussing in chapter 1. There's a major battle that's going on in the church at Ephesus and in every church all of the time as we resist false doctrine. We've been exhorted in chapter 1 to wage a good warfare, to keep a clear conscience, to not make shipwreck of our faith like the false teachers do. Hold to the truth, Paul says to Timothy. We are stewards of the gospel, commissioned to both display and proclaim that truth faithfully. So the call to pray in chapter 2, verse 1, is, based, is, is a then prayer. On the basis of what has come before, then pray. Prayer is rooted in our identity as Christ's redeemed people called to contend for the truth by living and proclaiming the gospel. So how, we read these verses and we do interpretation without knowing it. And it's very possible to have already read these first two verses and drawn this conclusion. When we gather for worship, let's make sure we offer a few prayers for authorities because that's a nice Christian thing to do. And in fact, it, yeah, I mean, they might even hear about it and, and appreciate that the church is praying for them. So do that nice thing. Rather, as we read it contextually, this call to corporate prayer for the salvation of all people is directly connected to our mission as the saints of the sovereign God. It's connected to our position as those who contend for the truth. We proclaim the gospel throughout the world. We live it out in our lives. We're called to this in chapter 1, and then we are to pray for authorities. There's more of a connection there than we might naturally see. He continues on in verse 3 saying, This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. He's not saying this is just a nice thing to do in the church to pray for people and, and, and God does even want kings to be saved. He's thinking much more globally. And we'll get back to that in a moment. But let's pick through it first at verse 1. We find here four types of prayers. They're overlapping, to be sure. He says, first of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. 
We're ordering the life of the church, how it functions, and here's where I'm going to start. You are to be a household of prayer. All kinds of prayers. We see that here. Supplications is asking God to act for the good of others. Prayers is a general term encompassing various types of prayers. There's intercessions. That's petitioning or appealing to God. And there are thanksgivings, which are fairly obvious. This is what God has done, and we thank Him for it. All kinds of prayers are to be offered in the assembly for all kinds of people. Verse 2, he says, for kings, for instance, and all who are in high positions. And I, I believe the sense of the passage is that, for instance. Not just for kings, not just for governing authorities, for all kinds of people, even for kings who, for the believers of that day, made life very, very miserable. They weren't good people. They were antagonistic to the faith in Christ. I pray even for kings and all who are in high positions. Why is it that we're to pray for them? You notice the connection again in verse 2. That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly, dignified in every way. How do our prayers as a local church, result in peaceful, quiet, godly, dignified lives on our part? What's the connection there? Verse 3, this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of our Savior. It is good and pleasing is Old Testament sacrificial language. Our corporate prayers are like sacrifices that ascend as a pleasing aroma to God. All kinds of prayers for all kinds of people Ascending to God as a sacrifice. The Old Testament saints brought animals in sacrifice, sacrificing those animals and burning them on the altar. There was an aroma that ascended to God. And it was pleasing when the worshiper offered that sacrifice willingly and with right spirit and attitude. Now think of it. When we come together as the local church, we're not at a temple, we are the new temple, but when we gather here and we offer prayers in this place, they ascend, as it were, as an aroma to God on His throne. Let that sink in. I wonder if we place that kind of significance on the prayers that we offer as an assembly. When prayers were offered here this morning, did you think in those terms? Maybe you didn't have that image in your mind specifically, but did you think in those terms that these prayers are ascending to the God of the universe? Like a pleasing aroma, they ascend as we rightly bring our petitions, our supplications, and our thanksgivings and the like before Him in prayer. But let's come back to the question. There is something of a knot here that has to be untied, and that's how do we connect our prayers, verses 1 and 2, with the church's godliness, verse 2b, with God's desire to save souls, verses 3 and 4. Paul's writing rather quickly here, and we can miss some things. But we could read this passage as saying that by praying for governing officials, we become peaceful, quiet, godly, dignified people. It's a little bit difficult to see how that would result. 
I think Paul is actually saying that our prayers affect the decisions of governing authorities. With this result, that we are able to live peaceful, quiet, godly, and dignified lives in this world. And the words themselves indicate this. The Greek word uh, for quiet is untroubled from any outside force. It's not quiet. We live quiet lives. We, we fold our hands and don't play with knives and we're good Christian people. It's not that. It's quiet lives in the sense that they are not tested from the outside. They're not troubled from the outside. Godly, uh, righteous living in the eyes of others, dignified, that is not maligned or persecuted. Putting this together, the words that are being used, it's clear that our prayers for the governing authorities are intended to create for us space, opportunity to live out the Christian life faithfully. I believe Philip Towner hits this well when he says this prayer This is a prayer for an ideal set of social circumstances in which Christians might give unfettered expression to their faith in observable living. The church is to pray for the salvation of all. And it participates in that mission by making God present in society in its genuine expression of new life for all to see, and I would add, enabled when authorities relate to us appropriately. We're not to go into all the world and build Christian kingdoms. We're to work with the officials that are there. We're to honor them. We're to respect them. We're to obey the law. We are to pray for them. And we are to pray that the gospel would have free course. Think not only evangelistically, but in every sense of the word, that we would be able to live our lives on display before the world living out this gospel, I think is the connection. So Paul doesn't flesh it out here. It leads to a little confusion, but I think he's saying essentially what Peter is saying here in 1 Peter chapter 2. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a, coverage, as a covering for evil, but living as servants of God. Let's pause for a moment. Let's just think through this. We gather on the Lord's day in obedience to God's command. He calls us as Christians to gather on this day. We gather on the Lord's day to worship the one true and living God, to exalt His name and rejoice in His saving grace. I trust that's why you have come today. We gather to identify ourselves as the church of Jesus Christ, the church that He's saving out of this world. We're here to say, I'm, I'm one of those. I'm with this body of believers as those saved by Christ. And we assemble together on the Lord's day to labor for Christ's global mission by asking God to save souls and praying that He will turn the hearts of rulers to permit the continuing spread of the gospel. 
might have missed us this morning. That prayer was offered in this place a few moments ago. Did you hear it? A prayer for the persecuted church. It's not to say that we have to pray that prayer every week. But it is to say that that is our function, to ask that God would so work in the kingdoms of this world that governing authorities would permit the gospel to be proclaimed and to be lived out. So that that work goes forward. Every once in a while, we hear about a, a march on Washington. Uh, you, we're all, we all have that in our perceptions on some level, that some group gets together. It might be a conviction that leads them there or a political agenda, but it's important enough to gather people from across the face of this nation all to our center at Washington, D.C., and to say, we want this point known. We stand for this, whatever it would be. There is a sense in which this gathering on the Lord's Day is that type of gathering. Every week we gather to stand together in prayer before God's throne contending with Him to save souls and to create conditions conducive to the spread of the Gospel. Here we stand before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and we make our petitions known and we give Him thanks. We don't do this once a generation. That's not the issue. We don't do this once a year or once a month. We do this week after week after week because the agenda is that important. We are coming before the throne of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We are asking Him to contend for the glory of His name. This isn't a march on Washington we do once a generation or occasionally. This is a gathering of the church of Jesus Christ to work with Him in prayer to spread the glory of His gospel. It is the central agenda of salvation history. As verse 4 stresses, our prayer should be for all to be saved. Paul is not here addressing predestination or the relationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. That's not the context at all. He just speaks here, I think, globally, stressing that God's saving interests stretch to all types of people, including Gentiles, even rulers, and even such vile rulers as the Roman Emperor Nero. We can pray for all people, for every individual, in any place, any, anywhere, the young, the old, the rich, the poor, kings and subjects, as well as people of every language, tribe and nation, because He is the Lord. Because it is an exclusive message, it includes everyone. And if Eden Baptist Church shares this same passion, we will be a praying church. We will gather together here before the throne of the Lord and plead with Him to save souls, to change lives. And we will give Him thanks for the goodness that He pours out. We will not view prayer in the assembly as a mere ritual or a boring exercise. We will pour out our prayers knowing that when we do, we stand on holy ground. 
And so, the local church is to function as a household of prayer in the interest of the nations. And stressing that second point, as a household of prayer, the local church has exclusive access to the sovereign Lord of the nations. That is brought out here in verses 5-7. through For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Verse 4 implies that God's will is supreme and His rule is universal, since God is exclusively sovereign. All humanity is the inclusive target of the gospel. His saving desires are global, verse 4, because there is, verse 5, one God and one mediator, Christ Jesus. There's only one God, only one means of access to Him, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So, as a mediator, he is a person who stands between two parties seeking to reconcile them. There is only one bridge between God and man. In fact, it's not a bridge, it's a person. The person who bridges the gap between sinful man and a holy God is the Lord Jesus Christ. As God and man, as the prophesied Messiah, promised to rescue God's people from their sin, Jesus is the mediator. He is the mediator in this sense, verse 6. He gave Himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. I think the idea there, the testimony at the proper time, it's uh, the message of redemption in Christ at the ideal moment in salvation history. But he notice verse 6, He gave Himself as a ransom for all. He gave Himself. It stresses the sacrificial nature of Christ's mediatorial role between God and man. He gave Himself as a ransom. His life was laid down sacrificially to purchase salvation for His people. And it says here, for all. That is, Christ's ransom has all people in its scope in some sense. It is rendered effectual only for the elect, but Paul does not pause here to point out that issue or to draw attention to it. God desires all people to be saved, but all people are not. How do we resolve that? Paul does not stop here to deal with it, and we're not going to either. It's an issue we have to continue to grapple with as we put together the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. But here he speaks simply in global terms. The gospel is to go out into all of the world, Christ dying for all. So verse 7, he continues, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling you the truth, I'm not lying. Apparently some people might have suggested he was lying. But he says, I am a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. The gospel focus of the passage emerges here again. Paul was commissioned by Jesus to serve as the official witness to the death and resurrection of Christ. He speaks to the Gentiles, stressing again the universal reach of the gospel. Since there's one God and one mediator, the gospel must go to all people and thus prayers should be offered for all people. 
As John Stott puts it in Hughes' commentary, he says it is because there is one God, one mediator, that all people must be included in the church's prayers and proclamation. It is the unity of God and the uniqueness of Christ which demand the universality of the gospel. God's desire and Christ's death concern all people. Therefore, the church's duty concerns all people. We are a household of prayer with a global focus. That is who we are called to be. A household of prayer with a global focus. There is one family of God. It's not an American family of God, thank God. It is a worldwide communion of faith that encompasses all people. And and God is not a territorial God. Places we can take his name and places that we can't, we go wherever he leads us to go. He's not a territorial God. We don't proclaim a provincial salvation. The risen Christ is Lord of the universe. He will draw his sheep from all nations. He will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. They will not be, the, the gates of hell will not be able to withstand the life-transforming power of the gospel. Speak it. Speak of Jesus Christ crucified in the place of sinners to pay the penalty of sin. Speak of Jesus' resurrection power over death and people will be transformed. His sheep will be found. Lives will be changed. And we need, seeing that, to grasp this truth. We are a household of prayer that labors for this global conquest. This conquest by the one mediator between God and man. The prayers of the church ascend to carry forward this mission. We offer prayers. We move Christ to change lives. Now, let me, again, just qualify slightly here. Corporate prayer is more than only gospel-spreading prayers. It's just that this is the emphasis that he draws here. But remember verse 1. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people. This is just a particular focus. We're pointed in this passage, as well as many others, to know that the local church is designed to function as a household of many sorts of prayers both formal and informal. Do some ideas come to your mind? Do we not see this in James chapter 5? Prayers of mutual confession to one another. Prayers for healing of one another. Acts 4, the church petitions God in prayer for courage and for power. In Acts 13, we see the church praying prayers of dedication and petition for cross-cultural evangelists. In Acts 14, we see prayers of dedication for elders. In Acts 20, prayers of blessing and watch care over elders in behalf of the flock. We find prayers of praise and thanksgiving and confession and petition and intercession as integral to the life of the church at every level. We see this in the early stages of the report of the Jerusalem church, Acts 2 and verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And I think here the article, the, is significant. 
It is pointing to definitive prayer. This church prayed. They prayed regularly, routinely, purposefully. The local church is to be a household of prayer. This is our high calling. This is our distinct privilege. To gather to pray is part of what it means to worship in spirit and in truth. And so it makes perfect sense that Paul continues in practical application with this directive. It just falls from his pen, so to speak. Verse 8, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. In every place he's talking about local church context. I I call upon you as churches, be places where prayers are offered. I think he speaks here pointedly of men praying in assembly because he distinguishes women in verse 9 with the word likewise. Paul is anxious to rightly order the function of the local church. It's not everything in its assembly, but in its assembly there is to be a particular order and direction forward. But without wandering further into that discussion, suffice it to say here, we are to function as a household of prayer. Every place, wherever the church is gathered, men should lift up holy hands. That was their natural attitude or body orientation is to hold their hands upward as a picture of receiving grace from God. So, anxious to rightly order the church, we are to contend with the Sovereign Lord to magnify the glory of His holy name in this waking world. Now, let's let's consider again. Let's think through this again. I'm really doubtful that there's anyone here who's saying, wow, I never thought of the fact that the local church is to be a household of prayer. That's a brand new concept for me. I really doubt that there's anybody here in that category, most likely. To say that a church body should pray is like saying that a human being should breathe. No Bible-believing Christian denies that prayer should be a vital aspect of our life together as the body of Christ. The problem is not knowing what we are to do and knowing who we are. The problem comes with doing it. Remember the admonition of the Apostle James? We must not only hear the Word and so deceive ourselves, we must do it. We must follow through in action. As we strive to grow in this vital aspect of corporate prayer then, I want to push and stimulate and encourage us with just a handful of propositions as a church. The first is this. We must renounce our natural boredom with prayer in the assembly and engage in it with a zeal that matches its true wonder. This is, or to say more simply, we must act in faith. We must believe that what God has revealed is indeed the case. A natural boredom with prayer, I think, assaults all of us. But when a leader stands before this congregation and prays, a sacrifice is being offered to God. Our prayers waft up like incense to the Lord. 
Can you imagine doing some time travel going back to this to the temple area, and a, a family walks up with its, its lamb and lays it there on the altar to sacrifice this lamb before the Lord. And they place their hand on its head and they slit its throat and feel its lifeblood flow from it. And there's tears running down their eyes as they confess their sins and sacrifice this animal. And you're over there on your phone texting somebody and checking the sports, the, the score of the game. And could you imagine that? Being so disinterested as to not really even be engaged with these people as they offer this sacrifice. It's different, I recognize, but when someone stands and offers a prayer in assembly, we should recognize a sacrifice is being offered to God. When we're led in prayer, we enter into the throne room of God. Privileged access that was provided by what? It wasn't purchased for us by money. It wasn't by the family we were born into. This access directly into the throne room of God, read Hebrews 9 and 10, is purchased for us by the blood of Jesus Christ. The reason we can pray, the reason the Old Testament saints could pray was on anticipation, I think, of Christ's death. The only reason that we can pray today on this side of the cross is because Jesus died. Do we recognize that when someone comes and leads the church in prayer, Jesus bought that with his blood? When we stand together before the throne of the universe, we contend with God to honor His name as Sovereign Lord and Eternal Savior. That's a matter of utmost significance. Through our prayers, we actively participate, participate in the global mission of the Savior to build His church by redeeming the lost among us and throughout the world. So Eden Baptist Church, prayer is among the most precious costly, awesome privileges we will ever tap in this world. And the spirit we bring to those precious moments when we pray together as a church should be one of zealous engagement and anticipation, not boredom. Number two, we must renounce the trend to view prayer as a decorative add-on, the trend away from substantial seasons of prayer in church services. Conventional wisdom teaches that public prayer is boring. It's the only the initiated who are really going to appreciate it. Most people will find lengthy prayers, substantive prayers, very difficult to endure. And so many churches set prayer to the absolute periphery of worship. Let's remember as a church, we may break some molds, but let's remember this is Jesus' church. We are to do here in assembly what he calls us to do. He calls us to be a household of prayer. 
And we need to calibrate our services to what He appreciates and what pleases Him, not what pleases sleepy-eyed Americans with their list of demands. So if someone says to us, and it's said, the prayers are too long, well, we should consider that. We should think about whether or not the content of those prayers is meaningful. But if that content is meaningful, the prayers that are offered in this assembly, it really doesn't matter if someone thinks it's too long. What matters is what Christ thinks. And are we saturating those prayers in biblical truth and speaking to God on His terms for the glory of His name? We're in good shape if we're doing that. It really doesn't matter what somebody off the street thinks about it being too long. What does Christ think? We can be foolish. We can spend more time than we should. We can be unthoughtful and we must ever improve. But what does Jesus think? We're to be a household of prayer. And it should be evident then that this is a church that prays. And most often that will strike some as long and boring may we come at it with a very different spirit. Number three, we must renounce our natural discomfort of praying with others as we strive to build a culture of prayer in our life together. That natural discomfort of praying with one another. Sometimes such discomfort is rooted in the fear of man. Sometimes it's nothing less than evidence of a cold heart that is relationally distant from communion with Christ in private devotion. And so it doesn't feel very natural to have prayer with another believer when I don't pray to God on my own. And there certainly is a natural trepidation for a new believer who's just learning to pray. Some people are shy by nature, and this is more of a struggle than for others. But may we give ourselves to this task knowing that we are to be praying with one another. That's not something to avoid or to shun, but it's something to pursue in faith. To be the church God called us to be. I had the privilege of, in my hometown church as a childhood boy, of knowing a man who had a a very, very difficult stuttering problem. He couldn't speak a single sentence without stuttering, really. Uh, Connected to boyhood trauma in bombings in World War II over his city in Europe. And he could never speak a word without stuttering. But when that man stood up to sing, he never missed a single word, not a single note. Isn't that wonderful? He he could sing the praises of God without one stutter. Pure, clear voice of song. And I think of that man, I think of that illustration of where maybe it would apply to some of us. We just feel like in speaking with others, all we do is mess up. I don't know how to talk. I'm, I'm shy in conversing with others. And the thought of praying with other people is just troubling to me. It's difficult to me. May the fact of who Christ is and what He has done in our life allow us to sing without stuttering. I think that's possible. 
that we may not be the first person in line to stand up and want to speak to others, but when it comes to praying with another believer, God liberates our tongue and lets us pray with freedom. Let's pray to that end. Let's hope to that end. Let's work to that end. And if you find yourself resisting the idea of praying with others, it's uncomfortable. Think about your relationship with Christ is at the heart of it all, not even your relationship first and foremost with that other brother or sister in Christ. And it can well be that we can so express our love for Christ that the natural fear is removed. Number four, we must renounce the tendency to be easily satisfied with the fact that our church prays formally while failing to promote a culture of informal prayer among us, linked very much to that preceding point. And I'll be just a moment. But I encourage us as a church, I speak to you as members of this assembly, pray together. Pray together. Pray at Bible studies and on Wednesday nights. Pray at meetings and prayer projects. But pray over lunch. Pray spontaneously with someone after a worship service. When someone reveals a concerning matter to you, pray with them in the aisles of the church, in the lobby. Pray with them over the phone. Pray together. Have the courage to do that. Have the courage to just say, could we pray together right now? You've just shared with me this concern. Let's, can we just stop right here and pray? We have seven statements that are made to seek to reveal who we are as a local church. Seven core distinctives that we seek to present to others who wonder about our church and what is at the heart of it, and to remind ourselves who we are. That last statement is on prayer. And it says this, and may it be our intention, that we purpose to live our daily lives in prayer. Prayer is integral to our church culture. We pray every day in every church service and at virtually every meeting. We pray silently and publicly, privately and corporately over food and with fasting, brief prayers, and through extended seasons of watchfulness. We pray regularly for one another by name and for the evangelization of the nations. Prayer for us is not a dutiful ritual or a means to psychological well-being. Prayer is nothing less than communion with the living God. It is our active cooperation with God's eternal purposes. Defiance of things as they are in the interest of what God promises they will someday be. Prayer is our importunate plea for God to contend for the glory of His name among the nations. Our intentional pleasure is to live together as a praying people until Jesus returns and answers all our prayers and His. By the grace of God, may it be. And let's continue in prayer. We need you, Father. We've sung of that need 
We run to Christ, our Savior, our refuge, our strength. We give thanks to you for all that you have done for us in Christ, for the rescue of the church, for the work that he has done to provide the forgiveness of sins. We give you thanks for his resurrection power and the promise of his coming again. And we've sung of those promises here this morning. Sung of the wonder of standing on those firm promises of God. We thank you for your word and we thank you for this body and we praise you that we have access before the throne of Christ, before your throne as he intercedes in our behalf and as the Spirit groans, lifting prayers we cannot articulate. But we thank you for those that we can as well and pray that we would lift them up to you in the culture of our church and in the worship services of our formal gatherings. May we be becoming a praying people. I pray that this would be clear to all who visit, to all who join this assembly, that we are a household of prayer, indwelt as a new temple by the Spirit of God, lifting praises and petitions to you as individual believer priests, praying to the one mediator between God and man. I plead that you will do this work in us by moving us now in heart and soul that with all of our strength and with purposeful effort, we would strive to make the changes that we need to make in perspective, in activity, in orientation. And I pray that when this church gathers on Wednesday nights to pray, when it gathers in smaller groups, when it gathers in the prayer projects that we have occasionally, when it gathers on the Lord's Day to pray, may we never send the message that this is a small thing. But I pray that by Your grace, we would lift up the name that is above every name. That we would lift up prayers in sacrifice to you and that through our prayers you would change the world. Change us in that process and be magnified in this body. Through Christ we pray. Amen.